We are uh, closing out our study of 1 Corinthians. Good morning, my name is Sam, and I get to preach a lot, so that's what makes me happy. Um, 1 Corinthians 16 is where we're at. This is the last sermon in, uh, in this book. I think we started in January. Um, and this is a really strange chapter, and by strange I mean... Uh, it seems like just a cluster of disconnected thoughts as a guy closes out a letter. Uh, and it's the kind of passage that um, we probably would be quick to just dismiss or read through it and just get on to the next book. So we believe um, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching and, and correction and all these things. And this includes passages like this that we feel like, this isn't obvious what it is. So I've, um, by God's grace, kind of come together with, with uh, a theme, if you will, trying to connect this all together and really in an effort to connect the whole series together to remind us what it's all about. So <clears throat> I'm going to begin by reading 1 Corinthians 16, the whole chapter, and then we will uh, get into it. <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 16, if you um, don't know where that is, Go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That is the basically Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, uh, and then the very ends of those are the death and resurrection. Uh, then we have Acts, which is the story of the church. Acts 18 is the story of Corinth that we're uh, reading about. Romans is a big book of theology. And then we have the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. <clears throat> Here we go. 1 Corinthians 16 says this, Now concerning... The collection for the saints. As I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, and he may return to me. I am expecting him with the brothers. And now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. And I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, Prisca, Prissa, Priscilla is what the long is, together with the church in their house, and send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
I, Paul, write the greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. For the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Let me just pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've been gracious enough to come down in such a way that we could understand you. To send your son so that we could see you and know you. Thank you that you have given us your word to teach us and to comfort us and to convict us and to encourage us. We know, Father, it is the one thing we have that gives life, the one thing that we know can change us from the inside out. So I pray today that you'll move me out of the way, and Holy Spirit, you will do what you need to do. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So chapter 16, this is Paul's uh, final instructions to this church. Uh, in Corinth, some would say he's three years old, some would say he's six years old, it's young. It's a young church, it's a vibrant church, it is a growing church, it is a, as we've seen, spirit-filled church, but it's a very deeply divided church. And just a few years after they were planted, this church has forgotten who they are in Christ. Division in a church sometimes small, sometimes big, but division between brothers and sisters in the church, for whatever reason, I believe, is one of the first signs that they've lost the gospel. Because when we believe in the gospel, when we have a deep belief in the gospel, we have a deep love for Jesus, and it makes our identity in Christ just that much stronger. And when your identity in Christ is strong, Typically what happens is that that takes our love for one another to another deeper level. It works together. And so what happens when people come to believe in Jesus, Jesus, through faith, He adopts people who are different. We're very different. We're all different. We look different. We sound different. We like different things. We have different personalities. Many of us would not... Be friends if it wasn't for the gospel that brought us together because we're quick in the flesh to dismiss people who are not like us. But by grace, he adopts different children together into one family where where each individual, as we come together into this one family, surrenders basically their own desires and they yield their own needs to the needs of others and they contribute their own talents and skills and money towards fulfilling this one mission to the glory of Jesus. The Corinthian church, however, had that experience. They came together, and now, because they've forgotten the gospel, they are full of just individuals, a bunch of individuals that have gotten together, are very self-centered, thinking about themselves, competing for one another of who can be the most spiritual, and all the while pursuing their own glory and their own individual agendas and missions. The reason why we called the series One, because that's the hardest thing for a church to maintain, which is unity. But once it's lost its unity, it's lost its effectiveness as a mission. It's lost its love as a family. Paul's intent in writing this letter and our intent in preaching, especially at a time when we basically blew our church in half, was to ensure that we all stayed on mission. 
that we all stayed unified, even spread over two hills as one flock. That we all basically repent, strong word, of our own agendas and get on the one mission that we have together. Because it's easy to start creating your own. Sadly, it seems, the the greatest hindrance to the mission that God has given His people are the people. It's us. And what happens is that temporary and passing earthly things like power and regard and wealth and all these things that are going to burn up and mean nothing, they become quite simply just too important. And so Paul climaxes this letter in 1 Corinthians 15. And he talks about the resurrection. And he talks about what's going to last and what's going to come after all this stuff. And he pushes people towards the eternal. And he spends, it's, it's, I believe, the largest chapter in this letter, the largest section about this resurrection. This is the climax of the letter. And after this section, this climax, he has a chapter that takes them back to earth, right? He's given a whole chapter, like, think about eternity, think about what's to come, think about resurrection, all these things in our past. And he says, but you're right here right now. And here's what he does, I believe, in this final greeting chapter. He reminds them that there is one church that is on one mission with one message that comes through one fellowship like us. We'll break it down beginning in verse 1. Paul reminds the Corinthian church that there is just one church. One church. We're going to hit this one constantly. And he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. He starts talking about this collection. Now remember, at the close of chapter 15, if you look back, the last verses he wrote... Were therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? He says, your work is not in vain. What you do is not in vain. And the very first thing he talks about as he closes this letter is the collection of money. He says that there's going to be one, or there is, he's commanded at some point, one time monetary collection for the saints, specifically those who are impoverished, brothers, sisters, Christians in and around Jerusalem. He says all the churches are collecting this. And he tells them quite plainly, he says, at the beginning of each week, so that would be Sunday, they are to set aside some money based on how God blessed them. And they are to store it up, most likely at the church, otherwise there would be a collection, the thing he says that we're not going to do when I get there. So they would store it up in one place, and it would be ready to deliver when Paul returns, and he would send, being above reproach, authorized men to take that collection so he can always make sure that it's accountable. And there's something to learn about giving here. Um, I think, namely, is this. A lot of people don't like to talk about giving. And when we talk about this kind of giving right here, I think Paul has actually got a larger issue that we're working with, but there's still a good practical question, that is this. Do you and I ever intentionally store up 
money so that we will be able to help those brothers and sisters in Christ that are in need. Do we ever set that, do we ever plan for that? I know there's going to be someone in need. I know there's going to be some neighbors in need. I'm just going to set some money aside. I'm not talking about regular giving to the church. I'm talking about a special little pile of money over here so that you'll be ready to help somebody when they come and say, hey, you know, I can't pay a bill. We get calls all the time as a church. Help people often. We don't even tell everyone about what we do. Paying people's rent. Buying them food. Know that your giving is helping that. Right? It's, I think, kind of weird to list all the people we've helped out. Like, this week we helped this. Like, it's just strange. But know that that happens often. I'm always curious as to all the Christians, maybe these Christians know why they aren't stepping in to help. So there's something to learn that. And unfortunately, though, this passage that we just read about these first four verses is usually used as a springboard to talk about tithing. That's not what it's about. It's one monetary gift. Now, 2 Corinthians, the second letter, if you read that, you realize that the Corinthians, first of all, were very wealthy, and they had a huge problem with giving. They struggled with it. And Paul spent two chapters, eight and nine in particular, giving them very direct instructions and comparing them like, you guys know the Macedonians who don't have nearly the wealth you do? They're way more generous. So the Corinthians do have a giving problem. They're very selfish. And they think that, oh, I just can't afford it, which they have more wealth than most of the other churches that Paul deals with. But tithing is not, it's not what is important in this text. And here's what I mean. You ask yourself why maybe there's a collection at all. And I think the greater point Paul is trying to make in this letter is about unity. Now, if we go back to the very beginning of the letter, so verse 2 of the chapter 1 of Corinthians, here's what Paul wrote, if you remember. In his basically intro, he said, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what is he trying to accomplish by having this collection? Here's what I think he's trying to say. That there's one church. That Corinth is not the only church in the world. Because what happens in Corinth, and same thing can happen here at Damascus Road, you begin to get tunnel vision and believe that, you know what, you're the only church in town. That the gospel arrived when Damascus Road got here. That you are the ones who are doing it right, better, or whatever than those other churches who have weird signs or preach maybe strange things occasionally. Let me just be clear. Corinth was not the only church in the world, and it's the same as the fact that we are not only the, not the only church in the nation, We're clearly not the only church in the state, or the city, or even the street. And there's a real danger in believing that your church is really great. Now, I do believe that we should be grateful for the church that God builds, but we have to fight being, quite frankly, so enamored with ourselves 
that we believe that the gospel, as I said, arrived in Marysville or Snohomish when we got there. And this kind of attitude, you know what it creates in people, when you start to believe that we're the only church, you start to feel threatened when any other church comes to town. Or any other church has success, you have difficulty rejoicing with them because, well, we want to grow or we want this. I think moreover what happens is when given the opportunity, you refuse to cooperate with churches because of your differences or because of whatever. I'm not saying you need to go cooperate with some cult. But I think that there's a real danger in starting to believe, and Paul recognizes this, that you're the only church there is. That your problems, the only people, you know, only problems there are. Your city is maybe the only city that, that the salvation of the city depends on your church. We're one church. And we partner with churches in Marysville. We partner with Free Methodist Church. We partner with Allen Creek Elementary. Allen Creek, Allen Creek Church. We partner with, um, we've dealt with the Baptist Church down the street. We partner with a lot of churches here. Some that, you know what, we don't have 100% theological agreement with. Most we do. We partner with uh, churches called, within our network, we have a network called Three Strand. Uh, C Community Church is down in Linwood. Communion Church, what we planted. Briar Church, which is in Briar. Uh, Port Gardner Church, which is in Everett. Oikos Church, which is in uh, Bellingham. Uh, There's King's Cross Church, which is Juanita. And we cooperate intentionally, and we give to one another, and we receive from one another, and we pray for one another, and keep one another accountable. Why? Because we know we're not the only church. And it's important for us to cooperate. And so many of you, guess what, have come from other churches. And I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. Without question, I am 100% glad you're here. And I hope that you will become part of our family and not just a spectator watching us because we're kind of weird. So we want you to be weird with us. But I will say this. I would encourage you right now in your seat to pray for that church you came from. You think about doing that? Pray for the church that you left, whether that be local or far away. Even that church that hurt you, that church that you just kind of outgrew, whatever the reason was, that church you came from, when was the last time you prayed for them? I'm going to take an opportunity right now to pray for some of the churches in our city and around. And you might be surprised who I pray for. Because you begin to believe that you're the only church and you're in some way in competition with one another. Maybe you don't. Guess what? I have. I'll confess that. So I'm going to take this opportunity to pray for some of the churches. I won't name them all. But as I do, why don't you pray for the church in your own seat there that you came from. To remind ourselves that we're one church. And one church isn't one in mine. In many ways, it's action. So that if a church is in need, guess what? We should be stepping up to help them. Let me just pray briefly. Father God, I come before you as one pastor for one church here in one city, in this 
huge nation and in this even bigger world. We are such a small part of this bigger thing, Lord. And so I want to pray, first of all, confession of my own pride, of my inability sometimes to rejoice with those churches that are just like us that experience your grace and for some reason feeling like we don't, knowing that we do. So I pray for, Father, the churches that we're in relationship with in Marysville. I pray for Allen Creek. I pray for the Free Methodist Church up on the hill, pastored by Vic. I pray for the New Life Church here in Marysville that we often have relationship with, even the Hillside Church down the street. Lord, I just pray that you will bless them, that you'll remind all of us that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we have some few differences. I pray for the churches in Everett, Father. I think of the journey. I think of Port Gardner. I think of Mars Hill. I ask that you will bless them. That you will keep them pure. You keep the gospel strong there so that your name can be made much of by us all together. I thank you for communion, for the Briar Church, for King's Cross, for Oikos, and for Seed. Just pray that, Father, you will bind us all together as brothers and sisters of Christ and make us aware of our needs and our responsibility to help one another. And I pray for those who are here, Father, who have come from other churches, that they will remember to pray for their churches that they came from. Maybe they're praying for purity. Maybe they're praying for blessing or healing. But help us to pray for one another. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Second thing Paul reminds the Corinthians of. We're one church, and he continues in verses 5-12 through to say, we're on one mission. The church has one mission. He says, strangely, in terms of how this connects, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps we'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Stop there. What you have here is Paul making plans. Now, the one church of God, the invisible church of God, the universal, timeless church of God, we all have one mission. And Paul is revealing his plans to basically return to Corinth in the spring. And the truth is, we all make plans. I made great vacation plans probably for the first time in seven years this summer. It was awesome. We make retirement plans. We plan our meals. We plan weddings. We plan our careers. We make daily plans of what we're going to do all the time. And as we see Paul making plans, I believe we need to understand that out of all the things things we can do out of all the missions that we have, a mission to retire, a mission to raise a family, we as individuals, as families, and as a church have to plan for mission. The mission, the one mission that we have. Now as Paul's plan, he said, here's my plans. And if you read in the book of Acts, you see his plans didn't really work out the way that he thought. And perhaps that's why he adds that if the Lord permits Because we are to make plans, but guess what? We are to hold them in somewhat of a loose hand because God changes our plans at times. 
We are to commit our plans to the Lord, and He will establish our steps, and sometimes the steps are different than how we plan. In other words, no matter what, we have to make plans. So when was the last time you actually planned for the mission of God beyond, I'm planning to go to church on Sunday? We plan that most of the time. But let me just be very clear. If you don't have a plan for mission, like the one thing God's given you to do, like He's given yeah, there's other responsibilities we have. I'm in a marriage. I have responsibilities there. I'm a father. Responsibilities there. As a father, I've got to provide for my family, so I have responsibilities. Okay. But there's one thing that trumps all of that. It's the one mission He's given His church. And if you don't have a plan for mission, guess what? You're not thinking about mission. You're only thinking about earthly things. Paul's current plan has him in Ephesus, he says. And if you want to read how his place says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus for a little bit because a wide door just opened up. Now, if you ever read in Acts 19 you'll find exactly what kind of wide door Paul is talking about. Because he's in Ephesus, and guess what he's doing? Right, preaching Jesus. And as he preaches Jesus, well, something good slash bad happens. And what happens is, I'll read in verse 26 of chapter 19, he says, I'll Back at 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That would be the faith that he had been preaching. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made little silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So this guy had a great business of idol making. And as these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would count as nothing. And that she may be even disposed with her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged. And what happens? They rioted at the local stadium. So Paul comes in, preaches Jesus, and everyone's like, we repent! Burning their idols, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh. There was such a transformation in the city that people are turning from their paganism, and it disrupts the economy. That's what we should want to see in every city. And in this city, it's not enough for us to gather. We have a mission. And our mission is to proclaim the gospel and to see this place changed like that. And guess what? It was difficult. He's like, wide doors opened up. Everyone hates me and they're rioting. I'm going to stay for a little bit. Okay? You know why we don't plan for mission? Because we know it's going to be hard. And once it's hard, we're like, yeah... I'm done with that. It's no longer comfortable. So what are you saying? I'm saying if we really are going to be on this one mission that God has given us, we are going to have to choose discomfort. We are going to have to, knowing it's hard, arrange our lives. 
and prepare our families for the one mission of God to see that happen. God has also, as Paul writes, given church leaders, given the church leaders to equip to complete this one mission. And I think this is really interesting and maybe disturbing. Paul says, I'm planning to come. I want to come to Corinth. Now, mind you, Corinthians kind of want Paul to come. They kind of don't. Who do they really want to come? Apollos. Apollos is our man, Paul. I mean, you're a good writer and stuff. We like you. But Apollos, man, that guy can preach. Bring him here. Team Apollos all the way. So Paul says, well, I'm going to come. And they'll be like, eh, that's, that's fine, I guess. And Paul says, look, I know you guys wanted Apollos to come, and I talked to him. And guess what? He don't want to come. Can you guess why? He's like, I ain't touching that with a 10-foot pole. I don't want to be involved in that. So Paul says, I'm going to send my boy Timothy. Now, my boy, he's probably a 32, 33, so he's not really a boy. However, it's interesting that Paul says, right? He's like a little worried for Timothy. Like when he comes, don't despise him. Make him feel welcome. Paul's a little fearful that he is not going to be made welcome. That he's not going to be respected. That he's like, you know, junior varsity C team. Like, whatever. Timothy's here. Woohoo. When's Apollos coming? And this should honestly cause us all to question because God, it, this is God's mission. And God puts the leaders that are going to be there, there. God calls them. And I really believe that this should cause us all to question our attitudes towards the leadership that you have or we have for this mission here. What do I mean by that? Well, let me be just real raw. Is there only one pastor you'll follow? Is there, is there only one preacher that you can learn from? One pastor that you can respect? Is there only one pastor that you'll listen to? Because the question then is like, well, whose mission are you actually on then? Because it sounds like you have your own mission that may not be God's. There is one mission. One mission for the church to accomplish, and it's God's mission. We've been invited into it. And God chooses particular people, calls them into ministry to help lead that mission, whether you jive with them or not. And God calls those men to serve and women to serve. And we must never forget that God's mission is way bigger than a man. We also have to understand that God has chosen to work through men to accomplish His mission. So we have one mission. It's God's mission. Church is one church. And there are leaders that are being given that we are to respect and honor, and they're like, Timothy, I don't know. Paul's worried about that. The third thing Paul reminds the Corinthians, verses 13 through 18, He says, I think one of the most 
Powerful verses in this book. It reminds them of the one message that we have. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. So the question is, what exactly is the mission? I think that's pretty clear, but we'll state it anyway. Our mission is to preach the gospel. Our primary mission in this life is to make disciples. Doesn't mean that raising families is bad. Doesn't mean that having jobs is evil. Doesn't mean that having toys is some kind of horrible thing. It means that your primary mission is to proclaim the gospel with your mouth and your hands and your entire life. We are to proclaim that we are sinful as men and cannot save ourselves. And we are to proclaim that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless, perfect life. And He died a death as my substitute. And He rose Him from the dead to give me that new life, that perfection that He had. We are to, that's our goal. That's our mission. The Gospel, this one message that the church has been given and trusted with to you know, take out to the world, is the source of life. Well, here's why it makes sense then that the enemy attacks the gospel most of the time. So Paul's going to go down and like, you need to guard this message. How do you guard the message? Well, the first thing he says is you guard the message by being watchful. Well, where are we supposed to watch? Well, Paul was writing from Ephesus as he's writing the Corinthians. If you read Acts chapter 20, you'll see Paul spent a few years in Ephesus and then he left Ephesus. And before he left, He had a meeting with the elders. And guess what he told them? I'll tell you. Acts 20, here's a rhetorical question, says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, oh, that's right, wolves are going to come. They're going to come from the woods and start attacking the church? No. He says, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be watchful. And remember, he says, that for three years I didn't cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Let's be clear. Churches don't die when the world calls them foolish or when it passes ungodly legislation or... Even when the world inflicts violent persecution, that's not why the church dies. The church dies when they forget the gospel. When they deny the gospel of grace and they begin to wrongly believe that either A, they have nothing to be saved from, or B, they can save themselves. Lost the gospel. And it's so subtle. It doesn't take but a second for people to become self-righteous, feeling good about themselves as if they are in some way boasting in themselves like the Corinthians are, as opposed to, you know what, I am broken, sinful, dark, evil, bad, and I know that any good that's coming from me is Jesus coming through me. It also doesn't take much for us to forget the gospel so that when we do screw up in life and we feel like just pure snarf, yeah, that's a bad thing, bad, right? We just have fallen on our face in despair and go, I am so unlovable. I am unforgivable. You've forgotten the gospel. You should not despair. 
You should boast in the cross and your brokenness, and you should boast in the cross and your, quote, success. We need to be aware, watchful. You wonder maybe why we always talk about the gospel, we're always preaching the gospel, because we are always forgetting the gospel. Let me give you a real personal example. Recently, I sat down with two brothers in my fight club, love these guys, and we're talking about prayer, and I said, you know, my prayer life stinks. <gasps> I can't believe the pastor said that. Well, accept it. Now, I was like, it, it, I didn't like it. I was like, it felt empty, whatever. And then I said, you know what? And I'm starting to feel guilty. Go, what do you mean? It's like, I feel like I don't pray long enough. They looked at me and said, ooh. You know what they did? They preached me the gospel. He's like, do you think that God loves you more if you pray 15 minutes versus five minutes? Well, no. Do you really think that God sits and keeps track of what you're praying and, and loves you a little bit more if you pray? I mean, those kind of questions, you start going, I've forgotten the gospel. Because the gospel is supposed to drive you into relationship with God. I'm not supposed to make my own relationship, if that makes sense. If I pray, I'll be in good relationship with God. No, I'm in such awesome relationship with God, I just want to spend time with him and pray. Those are two different motivations. Look how subtle that is. Easily we fall into that. We've got to be watchful. Wasting time. Here we go. We guard the gospel by what does he say? Standing firm in the faith. What does that mean? The gospel gives us a new permanent identity, so we have to fight finding that elsewhere. I am not defined. You are not defined by what you know, what you do, what mistakes you've made, what things you've achieved or not achieved, what family you're from, what money you have. You are defined through faith by Christ. Which means, I am saved, I am blessed, I am appreciated, I am reconciled, I am gifted, forgiven, new, victorious, and knowing this, I don't have to find that stuff in the world. I don't care if the world approves of me. I've been approved. Got to stand firm in that identity. Paul says, again in Ephesians 4, why? So that we may not, no longer be children like the Corinthians, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We stand firm in the truth because the accuser, the enemy, I should say, attacks two ways, temptations and accusations. Number three, we've got to guard the gospel by having courage to what? Obey. He says, be a man. And what he really means, along with strong, is be strong and courageous. To do what? To obey. The message of grace doesn't kill obedience. It transforms it. What do you mean? Well, in Christ, I now obey with a very different motivation. Not to be accepted, but because I already am. And because God has adopted me, He is no longer this cruel boss I'm afraid is going to reject me or, quote, fire me into the fire. He is a loving Father, and I believe that His commands are good and that He is commanding me for my joy, my protection. That's a totally different way. And so, I never forget the passage at the very beginning of Joshua, right? Joshua, I'm going to go and wipe out all the Canaanites in the name of God. We're going to battle. What's the first thing he says? 
hey, make sure your swords are sharp. Make sure the chariot wheels are oiled. Make sure your armor is shiny. No. He says, be strong and courageous to do everything I tell you. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Do what I tell you. Why? Because you'll have good success. So how do we guard the gospel, this one message? We obey. We obey what God has called us to do. And we're not obeying with a motivation of fear, but of joy. Keep going. How do we guard the gospel? This one message we've been given, we guard the gospel, he says, by loving in all that we do. See, guarding the message is not just about theological accuracy. We are to love. And if Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians 13, if we have all the theology in the world and all the Bible verses lined up and we are very articulate about what we believe, but we don't have love, we got squat diddly. We have nothing. In that same passage in Ephesians, he says, Ephesians 4, a great passage about the church. He says, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow as it builds itself up in love. We have to speak the truth, but guess what? Speaking the truth will do no one good if we don't have love. Proclaiming the gospel without giving the backpacks, if you will, is empty. Standing back and just with a megaphone, you sinners, you stink, and Jesus loves you. Why don't you turn? Like, really? You gotta love. We gotta be close enough to love. Last couple. We guard the gospel respecting authority. This is kind of a weird one, right? The gospel is supposed to make us humble. So notice it says, he talks about these leaders in the church, and in Corinth he says, Stephanus and his household. Right? These guys are one of the first believers, and he says these are leaders in the church that you should willingly subject yourselves to. Maybe some of them are elders, we're not really sure. But remember, one of the biggest issues in Corinth is competition for leadership. And so part of, of upholding the gospel is upholding God's authorities and submitting to those whom He's put in charge. The Corinthians are very easily impressed by those who are the loudest voices. And so Paul simply says, look, I'll tell you the voices to listen to. And they're not really the voices that are most loud. He says, these guys are the guys who are characterized most by serving We submit to authorities. We respect authorities. But he also says something else that I think is one that I don't know if we're really good at. We guard the gospel, he says, by, I think, recognizing the laborers. He names these three guys. Stephanus is one, Fortunatus, and then Achaicus. So this is the group of guys that came and visited Paul. And they reported on the church. Right? They delivered the letter. And as they delivered the letter, they're like, you know what's really going on, Paul. And he gave him all this news that Paul basically spent more than half the letter addressing before he addressed their questions. So you can only imagine what the Corinthians think about these guys. What? Those stool pigeons? They went and told on us? Right? That's what they're maybe thinking. 
These guys hate us. These guys hate the church as opposed to brothers who truly love the church. Think about what these guys did, what these guys, the risks they took of maybe not being liked. Paul's instructions to the Corinthians is this. He says, these guys who came, they refreshed me. They were a joy to have with me. So when they come back, recognize them. Acknowledge them for doing something fantastic. For protecting, if if not, the purity of the church. But think about this. These guys denied their own comfort and did what I would call the dirty work. And so what I receive from this is this. One of the best ways to guard the message the truth of the message of this gospel of grace and love, I think one of the simplest ways is to thank those people who never get thanked. It's to encourage those people who are laboring, doing, quote, the dirty work that no one wants to do. And how often do we do that? How often are we really talking about recognizing? And he says, he's recognize these guys. The, the people that are serving, in, and we ask for people that serve in children's ministry, but honestly, there's a group of people that serve in children's ministry and have faithfully, without complaint, for years. There are people that are doing all kinds of things just to make sure that the church is clean. Do you know their names? Road group leaders, do we know their names except for a piece of paper that give up their time and, and pray for the group that they're leading? People in sound, the bands, the worship bands who come and practice during the week, like, do you know their names? Do we thank them? Because I believe that's actually part of guarding the gospel, guarding this one message, protecting them from maybe the accuser coming to them and going, no one even cares. No, we care. We want them to feel loved. But the last point is the one that's going to hurt the most will hurt me the most, maybe won't hurt you, okay? One church, one mission, one message, but then we have this last part. Verse 19, the churches of Asia, he says, send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, that together with the church in their house, send your hearty greetings in the Lord, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Oh. So we are called one church. Big C church, right? Big C church. One church. We have one mission that we're called on to. And for that mission, we are given one message to proclaim. By what we say and how we act. But then, all of this takes place, guess what, through one little C church. You've been called into one fellowship. As part of that big church, you're here. Out of all the churches you could be at this morning, and for those who are here on other mornings, you're here at Damascus Road Church in Marysville. Paul ends... This letter talking about like greetings for all these people, people they know, people they don't know, but then he says, greet one another. Like your church, guys. Hey, you're part of these churches around here in Asia, 
Man, they know of you. You've never met them, but they love you. Your friends, Aquila and his wife, they were in Corinth with Paul, and they know them. Like, oh, we know those guys. Like, yeah, they love you. But greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, whatever that greeting is, it's one of great affection. Great affection. Now, I think our culture struggles with knowing how to be affectionate without it being weird or sexual or something. It's like you can't be affectionate with a, another man or woman without it going, ooh, that's kind of dark. See, in the early church, a holy kiss was practiced regularly. I don't know what that looks like. Use your imagination. But they did it, and it was an intimate act that would break through any sense of division among people. So what's the biggest problem in Corinth? They're all divided. They think they're the only church in the world. They think they can just kind of play with the mission and the message, and now they're like, well, I don't even think I love you, and we meet in the same place. Today, if we think about our affection as a church, right, as we come in, I think our affection rarely extends beyond a cold handshake. We do it. You have that lifeless hug, right? Like, how you doing? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Guys are really good at that. Hey, I'm not really going to hug you. I'm just going to kind of slap your back. Or then, the worst affection one is just the nod. You see somebody? Right? You know what I'm talking about. There's no affection there. It's like, you know, I, I would come and shake your hand. I just don't have the energy, so I'll just give you the nod. You know? That's where we're at as a culture. I, maybe we're there as a church. Where we have a, a distance between us. Where we would never be this affectionate. And so, the question is not pragmatics. The question is, what do you mean by holy kiss? You know, we're not European. Right? Good morning. You know, like, it's not about pragmatics. It's about attitude. It's about attitude. Now think about this, right? How do you view this fellowship? Because it's the one you've been given. It's the one you've been called into. How do you view this fellowship? Is this a family? Is this truly family? I mean, do you, do you have a desire? Do you really want to embrace one another in love in that sense? Do you think about the people who are here any other time than on Sunday if you happen to see them? I'll think of people randomly. I did it this week even, and I was like, man, I didn't see that guy. Just, just text him or call him and say, how you been? That's it. You'd be surprised how many people like, will say, no, that meant a lot to me. It's like, right, so is how you doing? But I was thinking about it. I mean, what is our disposition towards one another? Are we, are we willing to be that close? Can we be impartial in that sense? I mean, it was my idea, so I don't want to like knock it, but when you get to the point of having to have a 60 seconds of awkward, maybe you've lost. You know? Well, we need to have a fellowship time. I think it's fantastic. People, you, you talk like crazy, it's wonderful. Okay, I think it's awesome. But I think at some point you go, if we have to have that, have we lost in some sense this? The affection that's supposed to naturally be there. Like we're just 
so all over each other, like, no, I can't have another 60 seconds because I just have had so much love today. I mean, honestly, my greatest hope is that when people come in here, they, they come into our church, that they are so overwhelmed with friendliness. And not in a weird way, right? You can fake it. You've been to churches where they're like, you know, they're just this fakey. It's not that, but genuine. Even if it's not the new people, it's the old people. Like, if I see Tony, I want to go, dude, and just love on him. And for him to, like, not be weird, like, whoa, whoa, hey, huggy man, what are you doing, right? Back off. It's like we're brothers. Tony, we've been in the same church now for years. Some of you guys, we've been together for years. And the most we can get is a fist bump. Hey, how you doing? I don't want to get too close. It's just touching off. Right? There's an affection that I, I wish I could just make a program for, but you can't. You can't. I want people to, my desire is to have this because that builds unity. That's what Paul's point is. You guys are so worried about so much stuff. You've just forgotten to love each other. In the last two verses, I will close on this, and it will be really fast. They turn us back to where all the motivation should come for that. You notice the last two verses, he talks about two things. The grace of Jesus and the love of Jesus. That's how he ends the letter. I want you to know the grace of Jesus and the love of Jesus. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. He ends a letter where he gave them the biggest Bible spanking you can get in the New Testament. Now, if there was any church that deserved to be just verbally blown up from verse 1, it is Corinth. But do you remember how he started the letter? loved on him. So you guys are awesome. God has graced, graced you so much. You are awesome. And he ends the letter, with, he begins and he ends the letter with grace. They don't deserve his love. They don't deserve his respect. They actually totally deny that he's an apostle at one point. They don't deserve it. He says, man, I love you guys. Yeah, you suck, Paul, but I love you. Our hope to change hearts, our hope to become more affectionate as a church, quite frankly, is not just for us to kind of buckle down and go, I'm just going to behave differently because Sam said. Our hope is that people, quite frankly, will genuinely experience the grace of Jesus. They'll genuinely understand that Christ loves you. That Christ has welcomed you. That Christ has served you. That Christ has mediated your sin for you, that he has forgiven you, that he has pursued you, that he loves you. And that, because of that, we will begin to love because we know the love of Christ. I love what Romans 15, 7 says. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And as we think about this, when you think about welcoming a brother or sister and a holy kiss or a holy hug or a holy butt slap, whatever it's going to be, right? Do you do that? I want you to think for a second, your reluctance. 
how do you think Christ is going to welcome you into heaven? Do you think he's going to do this? No, he's saying. Yeah, just get in line. You think know, that's what's going to happen? Because I pray that Jesus is going to be like, Sam! Woo! Yeah! And he's loving me. He's loving me. And I'm just going to melt. Yeah, I love you. Right? That's the affection. It's all, it comes back to Christ, not just, I'm just going to be freaky affectionate for the sake of being freaky. How's Jesus going to welcome you? Because I guarantee you, that's how it's going to be. He's going to look at you and just go, I'm glad you're here. One church. We're one church. We got one mission to accomplish, and I don't know how many years we get to do it. We got one message that doesn't change, and we have one family to do it through. And I'm glad to do it with you guys. 